From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. For years, Palestinians and their allies have called on social media platforms to stop censoring content about Palestine. We speak with digital rights activist Mona Shtaya about Meta's systemic censorship of Palestinian and pro-Palestinian voices. But first, one month after October 7th, notwithstanding its proclaimed goal to eradicate Hamas once and for all, political observers are still in the dark about Israel's unspoken plans in Gaza. Other than genocidal rage and a desire to exact maximum revenge on the Palestinian population, what does Israel aim to accomplish in Gaza, if anything at all? Khalil Bendib posed this question to Middle East analyst Moin Rabbani, who wrote a recent article titled Only Israeli Military Failure Will Stop the Genocide in Gaza. Moin Rabbani is a co-editor of Jadalia Izin, the host of the Connections podcast and a non-resident fellow at the Center for Conflict and Humanitarian Studies. Moin, in an essay written a few days ago, you assert that, quote, so long as the U.S. and other Western governments reject Gaza's truce and focus on meaningless obscenities like humanitarian pauses, it means they still believe Israel will and can succeed. If they reverse their position, it means they have concluded Israel has failed. Please elaborate. Well, I wrote this in the context of numerous media reports suggesting that there is a point at which the volume of Palestinian death, destruction, and suffering will produce a change in the policy approach of Western governments to what is happening in the Gaza Strip. And my point was that if Palestinian civilian casualties and suffering, effectively turning the entire Gaza Strip into a killing field, if that was going to have an effect, it would have already done so at any point in the previous weeks. And that, therefore, we have to look for other explanations for a potential change in the policy of Western governments towards a current crisis. And based on the historical evidence, I came to the conclusion that it is primarily either military failure on the part of Israel or concern about negative impacts on their regional or political interests that produce changes in Western policy towards developments in the Middle East. And that in the absence of any of these other developments, they consider Palestinians killed en masse, wounded by the tens of thousands, the raising of entire neighborhoods to the ground, fundamentally irrelevant. And you give several historical examples, like, for example, in Lebanon back in the early 80s. Indeed. In that article, I gave two specific examples. The first, as, as you mentioned, was the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which, in fact, bore quite a few similarities to what we're currently seeing in the Gaza Strip. And as Israeli fighter jets and bombers and artillery were pulverizing West Beirut over the course of an entire summer in that year, the main sounds we were hearing from Western capitals were about 
Israel's sacred and apparently incontestable right to self-defense. And it was only once it became clear to the Reagan administration, to Thatcher in London, and to others, that the Israeli military was not capable of entering West Beirut and eradicating the PLO war aims, which Israel's allies had supported up until that point. It was only once it became clear that those objectives were unattainable that Washington dispatched uh, diplomatic envoy Philip Habib to reach an agreement between Israel and the PLO, pursuant to which the PLO would evacuate from Beirut and from Lebanon, but remain organizationally intact. The other example I gave is more recent, and that is from 2006, when Hezbollah launched a uh, cross-border raid to capture several soldiers in order to force Israel into a prisoner exchange, and Israel subsequently launched a devastating onslaught on Lebanon, and particularly the southern suburbs of the Lebanese capital, Beirut. When this conflict first erupted, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, Condoleezza Rice, was ecstatic, and she was more or less celebrating this conflict as what, in her words, constituted the birth pangs of a new Middle East. And for almost 30 days, Washington worked assiduously to prevent any movement towards a ceasefire or a cessation of hostilities. What then happened is that in the final days of that conflict, Israel launched a ground invasion of southern Lebanon. Their forces were effectively slaughtered by their adversaries and Hezbollah. And once it became the scope of Israel's military inability to pulverize Hezbollah became clear, all of a sudden Condoleezza Rice was beseeching her fellow members on the United Nations Security Council to pass a uh, ceasefire resolution as rapidly as possible. So here again, the thousands of Lebanese who were killed through intensive bombings by the Israeli Air Force and so on only became a consideration once the U.S. felt that its own regional interests and those of Israel were in the balance. The same thing happened in 1973 in Yom Kippur. There was this big push for a ceasefire because the Egyptians and Syrians were actually advancing <laughs> to, yes, to occupy well, territory. Yeah. Yes, although I, I would argue that particular war was somewhat different. It had much more in common with, let's say, a uh, conventional, conventional war, uh, yes. military conflict. And there you had the additional factor that, on the one hand, the United States was deeply invested in Israeli military victory in the broader context of the Cold War. And at the same time, towards the end of that conflict, the Israeli military, which at that point was still a serious fighting force, as far as ground operations are concerned, had managed to reverse its additional losses on both the Syrian and Egyptian fronts, and was in fact making advances into territory beyond the 1967 ceasefire lines. And in that case, the U.S. finally signed on to U.N. Security Council Resolution 338, calling for a ceasefire, primarily because of escalating tensions between Washington and Moscow.
In uh, the same essay we talked about earlier, you write that the only reason Western powers would start restraining Israel would be, quote, that Western governments have concluded that their and Israel's conduct is producing a significant threat to their own interests and that it's time to wind down the clock, end of quote. For the past week or so, there seems to to be a, a slight change in tone towards the continuing genocide in Gaza by both Biden and a few allies like Macron in France, essentially saying to Israel, you've had your fun, now behave yourself a little bit, or at least pretend to. Have we reached that stage after more than a month of incessant bombardments and probably at least 15,000 murdered Palestinians, where Western governments feel the need to moderate Israel's continuing fury? No, we haven't. And I also think that at this stage, we can't really lump all Western governments together in terms of their approach. There are, for example, I think, significant distinctions between the position taken in the past few days by French President Macron and that being spouted by Biden in Washington. Regarding what I said, I presented that as one of the scenarios. Yeah. In other words, if Western powers, and particularly the United States, came to the conclusion that their own interests were being negatively affected by developments in the Middle East, it could then reach a point where Washington would call a halt to Israel's onslaught on the Gaza Strip. And I think, you know, if there's one thing this crisis has demonstrated, it's the extraordinary dependence of Israel and of the Israeli military on Washington, whether militarily or politically or diplomatically. So quite clearly, Israel would not be able to reject any policy preferences emanating from Washington unless it concluded that there are basically no consequences to flouting U.S. policy approaches because, you know, there have never been significant sustained consequences for Israel in the past of doing whatever it wants, and it may well uh, conclude that it can continue doing so. But to get back to your question, I mean, we had a good example, I think, during the previous confrontation between Israel and Palestinian forces in the Gaza Strip during the so-called Unity Intifada in 2021, when as a result of the continuing confrontation, you began to see escalating mass demonstrations in a growing number of Arab states, first led largely by Palestinians, then increasingly being led by citizens of those countries. And at the time, you had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, in congressional testimony saying that if this continues, it had a real prospect of having a negative impact on U.S. interests beyond those where in the location where the conflict was actually taking place. And virtually the next day, Biden called Netanyahu and told him, okay, it's time to call off your attack dogs. It's over now. And the ceasefire was achieved. Are we reaching that point? If we have, what are some of these interests that you allude to, these national interests that are being threatened by the continuing genocide? Well, I don't think we've reached that point. And for example, you can take Biden's recent statement about not to intrude too heavily into Palestinian hospitals or 
Blinken saying he's pained or reduction in Palestinian civilian casualties. I think you can take all that with a grain of salt because I think the view in Washington remains that Israel will or can achieve its objectives of eradicating Hamas. But it's not only about what is actually taking place in the Gaza Strip. There are also broader issues at stake. For example, I think it's fair to say that in Washington, you have one group of policymakers which is incapable of making any distinction between U.S. and Israeli interests. I don't think these are people who, as is often portrayed, place Israeli interests ahead of U.S. interests. I think they see them as one and the same and are incapable of making any distinction. This is a group that, in my view, would include Biden, would include Blinken, would include National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, would include uh, Brett McGurk, and a few others. And then there are others who do see a distinction between U.S. interests on the one hand and Israeli interests on the other, and who believe that U.S. interests, or at least how they see them, must take precedence over Israeli interests. And in this respect, I think it's that school of thought, if you will, is represented by CIA director William Burns, probably by leading figures in the Pentagon and elsewhere in the U.S. security establishment. And for them, there are issues that seriously concern them. For example, they do not want this conflict to spread further in the region. They're particularly concerned about the prospects of a full-scale conflict between Israel and Lebanon, given that the U.S. has already said that if that happens, it will directly intervene to assist Israel, reflecting, I think, the U.S. assessment that Israel would be incapable of simultaneously fighting on two fronts. And they're particularly concerned that such a development could in an extreme case, draw the U.S. into a direct conflict with Iran, which I think is the ambition of at least some leading figures in Israel. They're concerned about the impact this is having U.S. influence in the Middle East. They're concerned that if this goes on for much longer, it could affect the security and stability of U.S. client regimes um, in the region. But then, you know, you look at the others. I think Biden is someone who simply doesn't care about any of these issues. His main interest is supporting Israel, which he sees as acting in defense of U.S. national interests. And then you have someone like Blinken, whose understanding of the Middle East is absolutely hopeless. I mean, he probably has a better understanding of astrophysics, a subject he's never studied, than he does of the contemporary Middle East. I mean, every time this guy opens his mouth, the U.S. influence in the, in the Middle East visibly uh, diminishes. Uh, it's interesting. Your uh, assessment of Biden is much more charitable than my own. I have followed this man for the past 40 years, I think. I've uh, read about him in the press. He always struck me as particularly subservient to Israel, regardless of any political, geopolitical thought. I always felt that here's a man who had decided his career, which clearly would lead him to the presidency of the United States, dependent entirely on that maximalist pro-Israel 
attitude, and I never personally felt it had any specific depth behind it other than political self-interest. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made, particularly given his long career in the Senate, that he hitched his star to that of the Israel lobby and concluded that remaining in the good graces of the Israel lobby was essential to his political success. I can see that argument, and I think there is evidence to substantiate it. But more importantly, I think Biden has also come to the conclusion that what is good for Israel is good for the United States and vice versa, and that what is bad for Israel is bad for the United States, and also in broader regional and geopolitical terms. So I think he genuinely believes that. And when you confront someone like that with the potential negative fallout of this blind embrace of Israel during the current crisis, of basically a determination to shred every last vestige of international law and human rights law and the UN Charter in order to enable Israel to carry out its war crimes and crimes against humanity and potentially genocide. When you confront him with these concerns, as I'm sure there are people in his administration who are doing so, I think his response is that this is really at best secondary importance, if not irrelevant, to the broader objective of ensuring Israeli success, because if Israel succeeds, the U.S. succeeds. Then you have someone like Blinken, who, for all I know, is perhaps more sensitive to these arguments, but thinks that what he is doing is actually serving the U.S. interests. I mean, this is someone, remember, who tried to market the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip to a succession of Arab governments at the outset of this crisis, not only because he believed it would be a good thing, but because it appears he genuinely believed that Arab governments would support this proposal. This is someone who stood up in a press conference after meeting with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, and publicly thanked him for the efforts of his security forces to maintain security and stability in the West Bank during this unprecedented bombardment of the Gaza Strip. And in his mind, probably believed he was boosting Abbas's popularity among Palestinians in doing so. I mean, the guy is just hopelessly out of touch with anything resembling reality in the Middle East. Until October 7th, Israel was convinced that Hamas was so occupied with simply administering the, the Gaza Strip that they would be unable to carry out an attack like the one on October 7th. A growing number of political analysts seem to be convinced that Hamas is political leadership, which lives in exile, was also unaware of what was being planned by the armed factions before October 7th. A bit the same way the PLO leadership was surprised by the First Intifada over 30 years ago. What is your take on this? Is there a split among the Gaza authorities that are busy governing with all the duties of a regular government trying to provide for the pressing needs of their people versus those who focus on armed resistance against the occupier. First question, Hamas and Israel's view that it didn't have the capacity to attack Israel. I think it's the reality is, is slightly different. 
which is that it's true that Israel severely underestimated Hamas's military capabilities, which even regardless of how you look at them at the end of the day are still fairly modest. I mean, they don't have an air force. Uh, they don't have armored brigades. They're using very rudimentary weaponry and, and so on. And I also think it's true that Israel's problem was not that it had intelligence available about Hamas's intentions and decided to ignore it, but that it genuinely had no intelligence of what Hamas intended to do on October 7th. But I think the more fundamental miscalculation that Israel made was that it concluded that Hamas as a movement and the Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip in particular was preoccupied with maintaining its rule over the Gaza Strip and maintaining governance and administration over the Gaza Strip to an extent that it would not engage in any confrontation with Israel because such a confrontation could jeopardize its ability to maintain its rule in the Gaza Strip. Now, regarding the point you made about other Hamas leaders being in the dark about October 7th, I think that's most likely accurate. There may well have been a general decision by senior leadership in the organization to resume confrontation with Israel for any number of factors that I'm not going to get into here. But I think the operational planning and details and and so on was very tightly held by a very small circle of individuals within the Gaza Strip. And I'm not the only one who has additionally come to the conclusion that Hamas's foreign allies, whether Hezbollah or Iran or well, I wouldn't call it an ally, um, Egypt, were genuinely taken by surprise once they learned about uh, October 7th, both in terms of the timing and in terms of the scope of the attacks. It's also true that these attacks were probably considerably more extensive than Hamas had planned for, simply because the Israeli military collapsed like a house of cards on that day. So, you know, in any movement and in any state or government for that matter. There are always differences between military leaders and political leaders, between different factions, prioritizing different agendas and objectives and so on. And that's certainly um, the case with Hamas as well. But I haven't really seen much of an indication that there is a serious split within the organization between those who wanted to engage in confrontation with Israel and those who wanted to avoid it in order to focus on governance. And the reason I say that is because the continuation of the blockade, Israel's determination to resolve the fundamental core issues of the question of Palestine unilaterally without any reference to either an international consensus or the Palestinians. The growing Israeli encroachment on the Al-Aqsa Mosque and settlement activities in the West Bank and so on, and the growing violence and extremism of settler pogroms in the West Bank, I think had led virtually every leader within Hamas to conclude that the status quo was untenable and needed to be challenged. Other than the stated goal of eradicating Hamas, 
and the genocidal rage. What are Israel's plans? And as, uh, other than restoring deterrence, as they call it, one month later, is Israel clear on what it is doing in Gaza other than genocide? And is there some coherent plan that you can fathom that would be agreed by the committee of five commanders? I don't think Israel has um, clearly defined objectives. Um, I think the one clearly defined objective that the entire Israeli leadership, government and opposition, politicians and military leaders and so on, I think the one thing that they're unified around is revenge and causing enormous damage and perhaps even seeking the destruction of an entire society, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. I mean, if you look at the lunatic level of violence, a friend of mine recently calculated that Israel has, during the first month of its onslaught, dropped an average of 11,300 or so kilograms of high explosives on the Gaza Strip per resident of that territory. That's the most intensive bombing campaign in the history of the Middle East. And we're not talking about Scandinavia here. We're talking about the Middle East, which has already seen its share of very violent conflicts during the past century. So apart from ensuring that there is a much higher Palestinian body count than there was an Israeli one, these punishing siege where Israel has basically deprived Palestinians in the Gaza Strip of everything except oxygen, raising entire neighborhoods uh, to the ground, besieging hospitals and all the rest of it. I mean, I think that's this apocalyptic, cataclysmic orgy of revenge and, and bloodlust and so on. I think that is a point of consensus within the Israeli leadership. But beyond that, I mean, you mentioned eradicating Hamas. I can't imagine that there's anyone in the Israeli leadership who takes this uh, seriously, because even if you eradicate Hamas in the Gaza Strip, there's Hamas in Lebanon, there's Hamas leadership in uh, Qatar, and Hamas, like the PLO before it, which Israel also vowed to eradicate, is deeply rooted in Palestinian society. So essentially, wherever you have Palestinian communities, you probably also have an organizational presence in one form or another of this movement. Not, you know, not necessarily in a military form, but at least in a in its political and social dimensions. The other objective that Israel has enunciated is overthrowing the Hamas government in the Gaza Strip. Now, that's, of course, an objective that Israel can achieve. But then you run into the question of, well, what would replace it? Would it be a prolonged Israeli physical occupation of the Gaza Strip, which is something that the Israeli leadership is deeply divided on? You know, some want to resume the direct physical occupation of the Gaza Strip, reestablish the Israeli settlements that were dismantled in uh, 2005 and even expand them and expel all the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to the Sinai Desert or further beyond? Do you bring in the Palestinian Authority, which on the one hand is something that most Palestinians or virtually all Palestinians would reject because they don't want 
a leadership that's installed on the back of a um, Israeli tank. And at the same time, Netanyahu, I think speaking not only for himself, has clearly stated that he objects to a return of the Palestinian Authority to the Gaza Strip because it's, of course, part of Israel's strategic agenda to keep the Palestinians fragmented and divided. Well, another Israeli or another proposal that's been floated here is an Arab peacekeeping force basically to do Israel's dirty work for it. And I don't think they will find many takers either in the Arab world or well beyond it. So there isn't a clear Israeli agenda. There aren't clear Israeli objectives. And I think this in part explains the growing role of the United States in Israeli planning and decision-making, because I think Americans have looked at Israel, have seen a leadership in chaos and total disarray, and have considered it important to bring some order into this shop. Not to mention Bibi Netanyahu's number one priority, which seems to be uh, his own political survival. I think, obviously, for Netanyahu, his, his political survival is a central concern, but I would be very wary of interpretations that try to explain what Israel is doing as a function of Netanyahu's personal political agenda, because you have people that are very deeply opposed to him, that are fully in support of what Israel is uh, is doing. And I think we need to understand what we're seeing as part of a longer-term Israeli strategy with numerous antecedents about how Israel views its relationship, quote-unquote, with the Palestinian people. This goes way beyond any personal political considerations Netanyahu may or may not have. Yeah, this is not explainable by one man or one party in Israel. No, because if it was, regardless of the catastrophic impact of this uh, onslaught on Palestinians, it's also having a quite significant impact on Israel, on the Israeli economy, on the Israeli military, and so on. And the idea that the entire Israeli leadership and society would just kind of stand passively by while Netanyahu engages in this war in order to ensure his political survival strikes me as somewhat far-fetched. Yes. So Bibi Netanyahu says Israel will not give up security control of Gaza now under any circumstances. Are they thinking, are they considering creating a larger buffer zone by emptying half of Gaza as they've started doing the north? Do you think they see October 7th as a sufficient excuse in the eyes of the Western world to empty out yet more Palestine of Palestinians, resettling it with Israeli Jews? Well, not necessarily resettling with Israeli settlers, but certainly emptying it of Palestinians. I do think that is very clearly on the Israeli agenda. But I think the more important point here is that these issues that we're now discussing are not going to be resolved on the basis of Israeli decisions. Ultimately, the Americans have a greater say in these issues uh, than do the Israelis. And if the Americans decide that their position in the Middle East is going to be significantly negatively affected by sponsoring and being complicit in an Israeli ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip, or half of it, 
and if their client regimes in the region refuse to cooperate, then it's going to be very difficult to see that any of these measures that you've just identified happening. And, and of course, the other thing that we need to um, take into account is, number one, none of these scenarios are viable or realistic in the absence of a decisive Israeli military victory leading to the eradication of Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups from the entirety of the Gaza Strip. And whether that's something that can be achieved or not, I think remains very much an open question. And military analysts who know much more about the subject than I ever will consider it highly unlikely. And the second factor is, and I think Nathan Brown had a very insightful piece about this recently that he wrote for the Carnegie Middle East Center, is that it would be useful to stop looking at this crisis as a conventional military conflict where at a certain point the guns fall silent, there's a formal ceasefire agreement, and then political arrangements can begin to put into place. I think, and Brown argues, I think, quite persuasively, that we're much more likely to see a gradual reduction or end of these major military assaults, but without being replaced by, let's say, the type of cessation of hostilities we had along the Israeli-Lebanese border in 2006, or that we've had at various points along the boundary between Israel and the Gaza Strip during the past decade. So I think there's a lot of wishful thinking involved. There's a lot of unrealism. But, you know, once you uh, enter the Washington echo chamber, virtually anything becomes possible. Remarkably, since October 7th, we've been uh, seeing many thousands of Ukrainians who had immigrated to Israel return to the Ukraine, driving a stake into Israel's self-image as the savior of every Jew on the planet. And they did this out of fear. They thought the war in Israel was worse than the war in Ukraine. The Israeli hostages seem to be the least of Israel's worries at this point, more than a month after their kidnapping. Supposedly, in Israel's DNA is the safety of every Jew anywhere in the world, alone within its own borders. But the families of hostages are almost daily protesting against their governments prioritizing Palestinian genocide over negotiations with Hamas. There seems to be a consensus that Jewish lives, as they like to call them, don't matter all that much when balanced against the long-term goal of completing the ethnic cleansing begun in 1948. What do you say about what this interesting phenomenon of almost total disregard of the safety of the hostages? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between reality and propaganda. You know, on the one hand, Israel has since 1948 consistently claimed that the existence of a Jewish state is critical because it would form the refuge of last resort to non-Israeli Jews, to any member of the Jewish diaspora. While at the same time, October 7th, it started, made a very conscious and deliberate attempt to place the Hamas attacks of October 7th in the context 
not of Israeli-Palestinian relations, but in the context of the Nazi Holocaust, to which I would say you can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, claim that you exist as a refuge of last resort for Jews anywhere in the world who may be facing persecution, while at the same time pointing out that the largest single loss of life of Jews since 1945 took place in the supposed refuge of last resort. So which is it, in effect? That's my first point. The second point concerning the captives and hostages, I'm sure Israel would, given the choice, would like to have them all back, all alive immediately. But I think faced with a choice between continuing its campaign of revenge against the Gaza Strip on the one hand, and its objective of seeking to eradicate uh, Hamas's military and governance capabilities, and on the other, the well-being of these captives and hostages, it's clearly made a choice that it will not allow considerations for the well-being of these captives and hostages to interfere with its uh, military operations. And this, I think, is causing some friction between the Israeli government and Western governments who are exploring the prospect of exchange with Hamas, whereby Hamas would release civilian hostages and dual nationals, if I'm not mistaken, in exchange for an Israeli release of women and children held in Israeli prison. Now, reading between the lines, it's quite clear who's going to be excluded from this exchange, which is Israeli military captives being held in the Gaza Strip. In your essay, you write, quote, the bombing campaign has not degraded the military capabilities of the Palestinian organization, the Gaza Strip, in any meaningful way. By its own count, Israel has killed more UN employees than Palestinian military commanders, end of quote. How do you come to this conclusion? Again, it's significantly speculative because I'm not on the ground. But from what I can see, for example, Israeli forces are conducting incursions into the Gaza Strip rather than establishing actual physical control over all these areas they've claimed to have managed to conquer. Hamas's command and control capabilities appear intact. Its ability to fire long-range rockets appears relatively unaffected. Every day, Hamas is releasing videos whose authenticity is not really being contested of Israeli tanks and armored vehicles going up in flames and so on. And I'm sure that they are being hit and being hit hard in the Gaza Strip, especially in the north. But if again, if you look at the nature of this campaign, everyone is telling us that Hamas is leadership and command structure and military capabilities and all the rest of it is located deep underground. And Israel's emphasis has been on raising structures above ground, leveling them with the ground, which to me suggests, again, as, as we've been discussing, that this is an operation whose primary objective is to engage in an orgy of revenge against an entire society more than it is about eradicating 
the military capabilities of the Hamas movement and other Palestinian organizations in the Gaza Strip. Mo'in Rabbani is a co-editor of Jadalia Izin, the host of the Connections podcast and a non-resident fellow at the Center for Conflict and Humanitarian Studies. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For years, Palestinians and their allies have called on major social media platforms to stop censoring pro-Palestine content. In a recent piece titled How Meta's Platforms Normalize Anti-Palestinian Racism, my guest Mona Shtaya writes, quote, The ongoing Palestinian-Israeli crisis is further intensified in the information space by the failure of the leading tech giants to combat online disinformation, incitement to violence, and hate speech proliferating on their platforms, despite countless warnings. The reluctance or inability of social media companies generally, and Meta in particular, to safeguard their users implicates them. Significantly, contributing to the dehumanization and normalization of calls for violence against Palestinians as well as the amplification of anti-Palestinian racism. I spoke with Mona about the systemic efforts to silence Palestinian content on social media. Mona Shtaya 
is the Campaign and Partnership Manager and Corporate Engagement Lead at Digital Actions. She is also a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, focusing on surveillance and digital rights in the Middle East, North Africa region. It is very alarming and it's really complicated when you are living in a situation where there is a repetitive attempt to silence people and to have a communication blackout, uh, as well as to restrict information sharing and prevent people from accessing information. And then with all the social media bias, we can and also only see like one-sided narrative on the social media platforms, which is basically affecting how people are sharing their narratives online, how, how people are sharing their or shaping their uh, opinions around what's happening in this part of the world. But also it is contributing to have those floods of disinformation on social media platforms. It's also important and I think it's really crucial to think about incitement, hate speech and violent speech that has been spread all over social media platforms without any key protection from those tech giants to protect people in the ground. And those basically are leading to a real world harm, where in the Palestinian case, the Israeli illegal settlers and the illegal settlements in the West Bank are attacking Palestinians. We're having deadly attacks against Palestinians where they are organizing and mobilizing themselves to kill more Palestinians. And it's even going far beyond Palestine. We've also seen the spread of anti-Semitism and anti-Palestinian racism on the social media platforms where even in the U.S., there has been reported that there is a killing of a Palestinian-American child in Chicago. So we're speaking about lack of investment from social media platforms to protect their users everywhere, especially in this small geographic area of the world. And so far, we have been under those events over a month, and we are still facing the same repetitive issues. And this is a systematic failure by social media platforms to protect people. And we have been raising those issues for so many years. And no one just think about improving their content moderation policies or algorithmic bias or even investment just to prevent or to combat disinformation and hateful conversations that is leading to real-world harm. In a recent article you wrote, since October 7th, as you just alluded to it, social media platforms have been flooded with disinformation and hateful rhetoric that have contributed to worsening the situation on the ground. You write, Meta's platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, have played a particularly consequential role in this because of their especially wide use in the region and the repeated mysterious quote-unquote technical glitches that have intensified the algorithm bias against Palestinians and Palestine. Can you elaborate on that? So over the past couple of weeks, we've witnessed, beside the silencing of Palestinian voices, we've seen how different platforms, especially Metazi platforms, are stereotyping, dehumanizing, labeling Palestinians and normalizing anti-Palestinian racism, where they are basic one of their platforms, which is WhatsApp. When people were searching for the word Palestine, Palestinian or Palestinian Muslim boy, they were finding a picture 
of either a gun or a boy with a gun. However, when they were searching for the word Israeli boy, they were finding a boy who's just playing or reading or whatever he is doing, but without a gun. This is a crystally clear example that they are stereotyping Palestinians and labeling us. That's one thing. On the other hand, the other platform, which is Instagram, they were mistranslating uh, the bios of people who have three key things in their bios whenever the word Palestinians comes with a Palestinian flag and with a word Alhamdulillah, which means thanks God. It's like a praise to God. And whenever people were clicking on translate bio, they were getting the translation that includes a tourist Palestinian. And this is basically a major crucial issue that we need to speak up about it. How they are dehumanizing us, labeling us and contributing to the anti-Palestinian racism and putting us under such labels. This is basically another example where they are repeating their systematic failure. And just to give an example, they have never ever they have done an any of their investigations publicly regarding those mysterious technical glitches. And this is not the first time. And we as Palestinians are wondering why those mysterious technical glitches only happening when there is something happening in, in Palestine. It never happened in any part of the world. However, it is happening in, in Palestine. And even in 2021 events, we also had some failures and some of them are similar to what's happening now. However, at that time, they also were saying we have a technical glitch. So those technical glitches are only happening with Palestinians in our escalating crisis, especially in those sensitive times. And this is our argument or this basically strengthening our arguments whenever we are saying that they are substantially contributing to uh, spreading the anti-Palestinian racism. Mona, a few days ago, you posted on Instagram, quote, well, it seems my account got shadow banned for the second time in a month after yesterday's published analysis post. So I'm leaving this picture to break the algorithm. You're holding a sign which reads, Meta must stop silencing Palestinians. So what happened to you? So basically, last month, a couple of weeks ago, basically, I published an analysis criticizing social media platforms. And at that time, when I published it, it got like widely spread. It was shared by so many people. Hundreds of people were sharing that. Mm. And it was basically, it, it got like a lot of interaction. However, this interaction and reachability was 1% of the, the exact previous post that I posted a day before this analysis. And then I reported this case and then they kind of fixed my account. So I didn't have, again, like high viewership and reachability, but it was better than that post exactly. Mm -hmm. So yesterday when I published my new analysis, exactly about Meta, which is titled How Meta's Platforms Normalize Anti-Palestinian Racism, my post was published over 600 times, like over 600 shares. And then the reachability of the post is only 4,000. I'm not speaking about small accounts that are sharing my post. 
basically this post was shared by a high profile people by a high profile pages including journalists and a jewish voices for peace page and other pages that has over quarter million people following those pages so here we are speaking about systematic shadow banning to prevent people from reading what is happening on meta's platforms and this is how i got shadow banned and again this is contributing to silence us and just to reduce the conversation about their algorithmic bias as well as the content moderation policies. But again, I'll go back and I'll put that in a wider context, which is the global equity crisis. Whenever we're speaking about investment, social media platforms are no difference. They are investing their resources based on the market size, not on the risk, assisted risk. And that's why, for example, in the U.S. elections, they invest way more money than they are investing in global majority countries. And that's basically one of the argument points that we are trying to understand why social media platforms are doing such a thing. Mona, is this a lack of oversight or something else is happening here? Because earlier this year, an Al Jazeera investigation revealed that the Israeli government has structured a powerful system of influence and pressure on Meta's management. According to Ashraf Zaytun, the former director of Middle East and North Africa policy for Facebook, the Israeli government has built, quote, a reporting army that notifies Facebook on of posts it wants to be removed. Zaytun also shared how one U.S. pro-Israeli Jewish organization created an app that allows subscribers to report anti-Israel content. So how much of it is really from pressure by Israel and how much of it is basically technical glitches or lack of oversight or they have to improve their algorithm? So it's a mix of different things. There is a platform failure whenever we are speaking about the algorithmic biased content moderation policies. But also, on the other hand, we know that there is massive investment from the Israeli government to silence Palestinian voices. And we can basically start with a communication blackout to silence Palestinians of reporting the human rights abuses that are happening on the ground in Gaza Strip. And... Yeah, they have formed something called the Israeli Cyber Unit that is sending tens of thousands of requests to the social media platforms annually mm -hmm. to be taken down. And according to this unit, social media platforms are accepting between 87% to 90% of those requests. And that's a really high number whenever we are speaking about such a context. Mm -hmm. And they are also have something called Gongo, which is the governmental operated NGOs, where they are having those platforms to try to gather all Israelis and pro-Israelis to report or manipulate with the algorithms on social media platforms to show more the Israeli narrative and to oppress the Palestinian one. What is happening on Twitter? Because it has always been a very, very toxic environment for users. So how does this censoring of pro-Palestinian voices manifest itself on Twitter? So on Twitter, with the minimum moderation that is happening, basically, because the platform says that they want to have an open platform, mm. it is different. However, this is allowing massive spread of incitement, hate speech and violent speech against Palestinians, against Arabs. 
And this is basically inflaming the uh, extremism and polarization in this case. We've seen Israeli officials who are sharing this information and AI-generated pictures. And even like the owner of the platform at the beginning of this crisis, he posted a tweet on his account saying that if you want to follow up what's happening in Gaza, Israel, you should follow those two accounts. And those basically two accounts were known before that they are spreading disinformation and misleading news. And I know that he removed that tweet after three hours. But for a person who is followed by over 139 million people, we are speaking about a massive number of users who've seen this uh, tweet and who've followed those accounts before being taken down or removed. So we're speaking about also a failure on different social media platforms to protect users from disinformation and from hate speech and violent speech. And again, I'm speaking here in general. I'm speaking about a global crisis. I'm not only speaking about Israel-Palestine, but we are now under ongoing crisis. So it's very clear to see the impact of this lack of investment in our region. Mona Steyer is the Campaign and Partnership Manager and Corporate Engagement Lead at Digital Actions. She is also a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, focusing on surveillance and digital rights in the Middle East North Africa region. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.